Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to Mark chapter 9. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Well, if you can believe this, I have exams that I am preparing for over the course of this summer, and I don't really think that's fair. Uh, One, I'm 40 years old, so I don't think I should have to prepare for exams, and it's summertime, and so I don't want to have to prepare for exams during summer when it's a break for everybody from school. And I don't know about you, but what I find myself doing when there's a big exam or there's some big project that I have to do, and it's really daunting, what I find myself doing is pretty much anything else other than that big daunting project or exam that I have to prepare for. Uh, So maybe, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to really study for these exams, and what do I find myself doing? Well, I tidy up the room, you know, I organize the desk, maybe I check my email, Now, basically, I'm doing anything other than study for this big exam. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with tidying up my room or organizing my desk or checking a few emails, but the problem is I'm avoiding doing the very thing, the very big thing that I know I should be doing. And my fear is that many of us live the Christian life that way. Really, what is the Christian life all about? It's about, big picture, loving people the way that Jesus has loved you. But that's hard, and that is very daunting. So I think, what do we find ourselves doing? Well, the big task is so daunting that I spend most of my time, you know, maybe I'm reading my Bible, I'm memorizing verses, I'm reading Christian books, I'm attending worship services, Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, and all of those things can help you love people the way that Jesus has loved you. But I think we find that we like to define our Christian life more in those terms than in loving people the way that Christ has loved you. And the thing wrong with that is that we're going to miss the main thing by doing all of these other things. And so this morning, I just really want to encourage myself, I want to encourage all of us to follow our suffering servant. Follow your suffering servant, loving people the way that he has loved you. So let me pray, and then we'll look at this. Father, it is daunting to think about loving others the way that you have loved us. Because, Lord, we, when we think about the way that you loved us, that you loved us not because of anything that we had to offer you, You loved us when we were your enemies, when we didn't want anything to do with you, when we would say evil things about you, when we were living how we wanted to live and not according to the way that we knew you wanted us to live. And yet you were kind to us and you were patient with us. You welcomed us. You didn't push us away. You wanted us to come to you. And Lord, for us to think about that is It's wonderful. We love to think about how you've loved us, even when we didn't deserve it. But to think about loving other people that way can be very challenging and daunting, and yet it's really the heart of the Christian life, is following Christ and being sacrificial servant to all of those around us. So Lord, help us to 
keep that the main thing. Help us to stay focused on Christ in the way that he has loved us so that we would have the strength, the power, and the desire to love other people in the same way. Help us not to be concerned about ourselves or our own reputation, but help us to be concerned about other people seeing and loving Jesus Christ. So do your work. We want to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice. We have this amazing privilege to come together to hear from you through your word. And so do a wonderful work in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. So Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 50. And the main idea here, again, is follow your suffering servant. So let's read verses 30 and 31 and see the glory of Christ's sacrificial service. Verse 30 and 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And so Christ, this is the second time, he's going to tell them three times in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 that he is going to suffer and be killed and then he will rise after that. And this is the thing that we love about Christ, is that he's willing to suffer for us when we don't deserve it. And so we want to see the glory of Christ's sacrificial service. But the amazing thing is where these verses fall after the last few weeks that you've had in Mark chapter 9. The amazing thing about Christ's suffering service is that he absolutely did nothing to deserve it. When you think back to the transfiguration at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, right, we see that Christ has unmatched authority. Go back to verse 2 in chapter 9. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So they get this amazing picture of Christ. They get a glimpse of his glory and his authority, right? He appears with Elijah and Moses, so the two most kind of prominent guys in the mind of a Jew. And what happens? Jesus is glowing radiant white. And I love Peter's response. He's like, oh, let me, uh, make, let's make three tents, you know, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Problem, right? Jesus is not on the same plane with Elijah and Moses. And so how does God respond to Peter's idea? Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. I mean, God is making it abundantly clear. Jesus is far above any other human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Think about the two most godly people you could think about. Elijah, Moses. God says, no, 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 no. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Supreme authority. But not only does he have this authority, he has power. 
That was what happened when he healed this man back earlier in verse 14. So Jesus comes down from this mountaintop experience and literally all hell is breaking loose at the foot of the mountain, right? There's arguing, there's a demon possession, there's a failed exorcism. And what happens? What no, again, no man could do, no disciple of Jesus could do, Jesus does in casting out this demon. I mean, who has power like that? No one. So he has unmatched authority and glory. He has unmatched power, and yet he's the very same person that will say in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And so all of this, this authority, this power, this glory, and yet he's the same one who's willing to suffer for the sake of his people. Sacrificial service is the heart of what makes Jesus the Christ. He has all authority. How does he use that authority? He uses it to serve his people. He has all power. How does he use that power? He uses the power to serve his people. He has a sinless life that's a perfect sacrifice. How does he use it to serve his people? The way he's going to lead and rule is through sacrificing himself for his people. And he willingly does it. He says he must do it. I must do this. This is how I want to use the life that I have. I want to give it for the behalf of those who would follow me. And how did the disciples respond to this amazing truth in verse 32? They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Right? How do they respond? They don't get it. They don't get that this one who was transfigured, who the father says, this is my beloved son, the one who could cast out a demon that no one else could cast out, they don't understand how that same person could be willing to be killed for the sake of his people. And you can sort of understand it, right? I mean, what's their expectation about the Messiah? The Messiah is going to rule. The Messiah is going to conquer. He is going to be, he's going to crush all of our enemies, and we're going to get to reign with him. And Jesus is saying, that's all true, but it's going to happen through suffering and death. And so they're afraid to ask him. And I mean, you can imagine why, right? I mean, they're, you know, you could almost see them fighting with you. It's like, you ask him. It's like, I'm not going to ask him. It's like, bro, just ask him. I'm not going to ask him either. The last guy that asked him about his suffering and death, he called Satan. I'm not going to do that. What are they so afraid of? Well, I think they're afraid of the fact that Jesus has told them that they need to follow him. And if Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and suffer and die, what do you think they're thinking following him might mean? It might mean the very same things. A life of sacrificial service. So do you see the glory of Christ's sacrificial service? I mean, think about where would you be without a Savior who is willing to sacrificially serve you? I mean, he gave his life to free you from sin. He's using all of his authority and power for your benefit. He serves you to the point of death, a death he didn't deserve. And he did all of it when, in the words of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following after your own lust. You didn't want anything to do with him. And yet he's the very Savior that would sacrifice his life for you. 
I mean, the glory of Christ's sacrificial service is that he loves to serve those that don't deserve it. God became a man to serve the creation that rebelled against him. I mean, who does that? I mean, sometimes we'll pat ourselves on the back for not blowing up at the barista who messed up our latte order, and yet Jesus dies begging the Father to forgive the people that are murdering him. He is the utmost of sacrificial service. And so see the glory of that. See the glory of Christ's sacrificial service. And if you do see the glory of Christ's sacrificial service, then secondly, measure greatness in service. Measure greatness in service. Look at verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house, and he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? So on the way of hearing Jesus talk about he's going to suffer and die. Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. I mean, talk about missing the point. Right? I mean, Jesus just said, after being transfigured, after casting out a demon, he's going to suffer and die. And as they're continuing on the way, he asks them a question. What were you talking about as you were walking along? And no one says anything, right? And this is the total moment where a parent, you know, comes into the room. The kids are fighting. and You can hear them going, you know, carrying on. And you walk in and you say, hey, what's going on in here? Nothing. Everything's fine. No, they didn't want to talk about it because what were they talking about? They were arguing with each other about which one of them was the greatest. After Jesus said he's going to suffer and be killed, they're arguing about this. But it's worse than that because, I mean, think again. You had the transfiguration, the unmatched glory of Christ. Then you had the healing, right? I mean, the, the other disciples couldn't cast out this demon, and yet Jesus alone can cast him out. And they ask him, why is that? Why were you able to cast out that demon when we couldn't? And he says what? This kind could only be cast out through prayer. So it never occurred to the disciples when they couldn't cast out this demon, hey, maybe we should ask for help. Maybe we should call on God to help. No, 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 no. So they have this embarrassing reminder that they have no power in themselves. All of their power comes from Christ. And now they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They heard a voice from the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And they're arguing with each other about who's the greatest. They couldn't cast out a demon because they relied on their strength instead of Christ. And they're arguing amongst themselves about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus just said he's going to suffer and be killed, and they're arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest. I mean, I'm not even sure how they could even argue, right? I mean, what, what what were the talking points of this argument? It's like, oh, well, he took us up to the mountain of transfiguration, so we must be the greatest. Yeah, but you said that you should build three tents. So it's like, what, you don't know anything, you know? Or, well, well, he trusted us to cast out the demon. Well, you couldn't cast out the demon. So what exactly they're arguing about, I'm not sure. 
but they find themselves talking about who is the greatest. And Jesus says, okay, you want to learn about greatness? Let's talk about it. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. If you guys want to be the greatest, if you want to be first, here's what you have to do. Serve everyone else. That is greatness. Greatness is measured in service. If you want to be great in God's eyes, then serve like Jesus. Serving is the primary way to follow Christ. And this is both encouraging and a little bit intimidating at the same time. It's really encouraging because anybody can do this. Anybody can serve others the way that Jesus served them, right? He goes on to talk about giving a cup of water. So this isn't some, some great thing that only a few people can do. No, service this way is something that everyone can do. And that's a great encouragement. But it's also very intimidating because serving people the way that Jesus served us is hard. Because again, he served us when we didn't deserve to be served. And if you give your life in serving other people that way, that is difficult. But greatness in God's kingdom, according to Jesus, is serving others. So if that's what greatness is measured in, then what is greatness in the kingdom not measured in? Well, greatness in the kingdom is not measured in church attendance. It's not measured in theological knowledge. It's not measured in Bible verses memorized, how often you read your Bible or things like that. Now, don't get me wrong, all of those things are valuable, and all of those things can help you to serve the way that Jesus served. But if you do those things without serving others, then it's nothing. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 13, right? Paul says, if I could do all these things, if I could speak in the tongues of angels, if I could lay my life down for the sake of someone else, but it wasn't motivated by love, it counts for Nothing. Service. Greatness is measured in service. And so see the glory of Christ's sacrificial service. I think the challenging thing when we think about these disciples, it's obviously it's easy for us to, you know, wag our finger, wag our head at them and wave our finger saying, no, 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 no. But how often do we find ourselves arguing about being the greatest? And maybe we don't do it in that obvious of a way, right? We don't go around saying, well, I'm actually better than you because of X, Y, Z. No, but if you have thoughts like, well, I can't believe that this person would do this to me. Or doesn't this person understand uh, my situation or who I am? We argue in our minds about which one of us is the greatest. And Jesus is saying, look to Christ. Look to him. Because if you look at him, if you see his unmatched glory, authority, and power, then you'll never argue with anyone else about which one is the greatest. And you'll see yourself on an even playing field with everybody else. And that will actually enable you to serve like Christ, knowing that he is the greatest and I want to do anything I can to promote him and point people to him. Then I'll see myself as a servant of everyone rather than arguing about which one of us is the greatest. And so measure greatness in service. And really the rest of this text, really from verse 36 on to the end of the chapter, is all about how do I do that? How do I serve like Jesus? 
And I think there's three ways that he's going to mention. He's going to talk about that we receive all, that we don't hinder anyone, and that we make sure we don't cause anybody to sin or to stumble. And I think the big idea with all of these three ways that he's going to talk about is that we point people to Christ. We want people to see Christ as he truly is. So we want to welcome people like Christ has welcomed us. We don't want to hinder anybody from pursuing Christ. And we definitely don't want to do anything that would cause someone to sin or to stumble in their view of who he is. So we point everyone to Christ. So point number three, serve others by pointing them to Christ. Verses 36 through the rest of the chapter. The first way that we do that in verse 36 and 37 is we receive all. Verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so Jesus wants to give them an object lesson. What am I talking about? When I say that you should be last of all, servant of all, what does that look like? Well, one thing is it looks like you receiving everyone. So he gives them an object lesson. He takes a child and brings him to himself. Now, why would Jesus take a child? Well, Jesus has used a child as a different illustration at different times, saying that we should be humble like a child or dependent like a child on God. But here he's using a child because in the culture at this time, a child is basically of no value, no social value in that culture. I mean, they're basically ignored in social context. We even get hints of that in the Gospels, right? When kids try to come to Jesus, what do the disciples do? Like, get away from him, right? Don't bother him. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not how it's going to be. If you want to be great, you receive a child. I don't know if, you know, if you've ever had the experience of taking a child to a fancy restaurant. Most of the time, you know, the other patrons are not really happy to see a child in a fancy restaurant. You know, this is a fancy place. This is where they're supposed to be calm and peace, and I'm going to enjoy a nice meal with some friends. And a child, I mean, they could be loud. They could spill something, you know, and they don't want to see children in that situation. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. Children are seen as a disruption, They're usually viewed by others as weak, vulnerable, or insignificant. And so Jesus is saying, when you see someone, a child or not, that the world says is weak, vulnerable, or insignificant, you welcome them. You receive them. You give them care. You show them importance. He's kind of taking this kind of social idea of who's valuable and who's not valuable, and he's turning it around. And he's saying, receive all. Receive them all in my name. So Christ-like service is giving importance to people the world says are unimportant. Treat everyone as significant, especially those that the world would say are insignificant. Why do that? Well, because typically we only treat people well if we see them as giving some sort of value to us. I'm going to treat you well if I know that you'll treat me well. Or you've been nice to me, so I'm going to be nice to you. Or if I'm kind to you, maybe you'll help me down the road. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we don't do that. We treat people well regardless 
of what they give us in return. In fact, you should prioritize caring for those that can give you nothing in return because that's what Jesus did for us. And so there are no insignificant people to Christ. So how should that change how you walk through even church? Like, do you avoid some people? Do you hope that that person doesn't talk to you? Do you ignore others? Well, Jesus says, no, you should be looking for opportunities to welcome each person that you see, especially if someone appears to be an outcast or uncomfortable there. So if you see someone new, welcome them. If you see someone sitting alone, go sit down next to them. Receive all. Old, young, cool, uncool, receive all. You know, one of the convicting things about this passage for me is I tend to kind of be a shy person, but I'm really seeing as I study this that really shyness is selfishness, right? Shyness is just another way of arguing in my mind about which one of us is the greatest. I'm shy because I'm concerned that if I do something, well, someone might think differently of me. And so fear of man can keep you from loving people the way that Christ has loved you. You know, if you're someone that's plagued by worry about what other people think, it either means that you don't believe what God says about you, or you care more about what they say about you than what God says. And the danger of that is it'll keep you from doing this. It'll keep you from the main thing. It'll keep you from loving people the way that Christ has loved you. You know, I think about my high school experience a lot, uh, especially as it relates to these very same things. And I was not saved in high school, but there's many times where I wish I could go back as a saved person and be in high school. Because if there's a, one atmosphere where people maybe need the love of Christ more than anyone else, I feel like it's the high school environment, right? I mean, it's all about who's the greatest, right? Whether it's measured by looks or by status, whatever it is. And so I just encourage you, if you are in a situation like that, maybe it's not high school, but maybe it's a workplace, maybe something else, where there's just all of this competing with which one of you is the greatest, take the opportunity to show the love of Christ, especially in those situations. Because I think you'll see God do amazing things when you serve like that, especially in those situations. So why should we do it? Why should we receive people in verse 37. Why should we do this? Well, you do it in my name, right? Whoever receives one such child in my name. We do it for the sake of Christ. We do it because that's the way that Christ welcomed you, and now you have the opportunity to welcome others in the very same way. He didn't welcome you because you were significant or that you were the key piece in him accomplishing his mission. No, he welcomed you even when you were his enemy. And don't you love him for that? I mean, don't you love that he welcomed you when you did not deserve to be welcomed? And if you love him for that, then serve other people that way too. Follow in the footsteps of your Savior. Follow your suffering servant by receiving all. But Christ ends this sentence with this amazing promise. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. The amazing thing is when you serve someone like that, when you receive someone in that way, Jesus says, you're actually receiving me. And you're not just receiving me, you're also receiving the one who sent me. 
When you love people this way, you're actually expressing your love for Jesus and your love for the Father. I mean, think about it this way. Let's say that you have like a lifelong best friend and they live in New York, you know, and you live here in the Bay Area. And this lifelong best friend, his parents or her parents are going to come to the Bay Area. They've never been and they want to see everything that the Bay Area has to offer. So your friend calls you and says, you know, our parent, my parents are coming out. Would you show them around? I'm not able to come. Could you take them around and just give, show them a good time in the Bay Area? And so what would you do? Well, if this is your lifelong best friend, I want to show, them, show his parents everything that the Bay Area has to offer. So we'll do the Golden Gate Bridge. Maybe we'll go to Napa. We'll do Alcatraz. We'll go to Mirror Woods. Whatever it is, I want to show them a wonderful time. And let's say you did exactly that. Now imagine the parents fly back to New York and they talk to your best friend and they tell them all about how wonderful of a time they had with you in the Bay Area. How would your best friend feel? Your best friend would feel very loved by you. Why? Because you loved the people that were important to them. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you treat every person this way, when Jesus sees that, he's saying, wow, this person doesn't just love that person that they're treating well. This person loves me. He loves the people that are important to me. Every person that you meet is important to Christ. Every person that you come into contact with is sent by Christ into your life. And if you love them well, because you love Christ, then Christ says you receive not only that person, you receive me and you receive the Father. I mean, what an encouragement that is. When you love people that are important to Jesus, you're actually loving Jesus and the Father. And so what a calling. What an opportunity to show Christ-like love by receiving all in his name. And so how are the disciples going to respond to this amazing calling, this amazing privilege that they have to love others in the name of Jesus? Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's just like, what? What are you talking about? Are you even listening to the things that I'm saying? Right? I mean, this is like you sit down, you want to have, you know, this heart-to-heart with your child. You know, they've been disruptive or they really need shepherding. And so you sit down and you just pour out your heart about the things that you want to see in your child's life. And they look at you and they say, so are we going to have ice cream for dessert or not? like, are you even listening to the things that I'm saying? Jesus is saying, serve other people the way that I've served you. Receive everyone. And John says, hey, we saw some people casting out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because they're not following us. It's like, what are you talking about? And so Jesus says in verse 39, do not stop him or do not hinder him. So this is the second way that we can serve others like Jesus has served us. We can hinder no one or stop no one. Verse 38, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose 
his reward. So again, John has come up. He says that they tried to stop some people that were casting out demons. Now, what's going on? Why is John upset? Why would John think, I need to stop this from happening? Well, one thing, it could just be jealousy, right? Because this is just on the heels of them being failing to cast out a demon. And so here are these other people that are able to cast out a demon, and so there may be some jealousy that's happening there. But what's the reason that John gives for why they asked him to stop at the end of verse 38? Because he was not following us. It's like, us? Like, why would it matter if these people who are doing work in Jesus' name are following you guys? Right? I mean, you're the guys that just couldn't cast out a demon. Like, why would, it, why would it think they think that they need to be following you? Well, what's going on? Well, John thinks that the disciples are the only legitimate group following Jesus. He's being exclusive, right? If you're really following Jesus, if you're really trying to do things in Jesus' name, then you'd be with us. You wouldn't be kind of doing your thing over there. You're not really legit. John's not recognizing that there are true followers of Christ outside of his circle. And I think that's something that we all struggle with. But followers of Christ should not be suspicious of other followers of Christ. You know, I love our church. I love this church. I think we're all faithfully striving after Christ, but we're not the only churches around. And if we hear of someone who's going to some other church, our first thought should not be, well, there's probably something wrong with them, or there's probably something wrong with that church. Otherwise, they'd be here. You know, we need to not assume that if someone goes somewhere else, that they're somehow not really following Christ. You know, you are not the standard for what it means to follow Christ. I'm not the standard for what it means to follow Christ. Someone might be genuinely seeking to live for Christ, and their life might look a little bit different than yours. They might make different choices about where they want to send their kids to school, public school, home school, private school. They might make different choices about what entertainment they watch, what books they read. We should not be quick to dismiss someone else's faith because it looks different than ours. And so what does Jesus say? Basically, you should encourage the faith of others in verses 39 to 41. Three reasons. Why should you encourage the faith of others? Verse 39. Because the one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to not speak evil of me. So Jesus is saying, first, these are genuine people that are serving Christ in his name. Right? People that are genuinely desiring to honor Christ, but are doing it outside of Jesus and the 12 disciples. You know, there are people that, are, that genuinely desire to honor Christ that might have a different view of baptism than you. There are people that genuinely desire to follow Christ that might, again, live life a little bit differently than you. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't be discerning, right? right? If someone's saying, well, I love Jesus, but their life is full of sin, well, we need to lovingly confront those things in love. But Jesus is saying there are people that are doing things a little bit differently that are doing it still in my name. And so we need to be welcoming of people 
like that, even if their life looks a little bit different than ours. Secondly, verse 40, the second reason why we should not hinder anyone, it says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Or in other words, we're all in this together. We shouldn't be people that fight, Christians shouldn't fight amongst themselves. We are all in this together. We all have the same big goal at the end. We want to see Christ exalted. We want to see people saved. And so let's work together instead of fighting with each other. He's encouraging greater unity in the body of Christ. He doesn't want his people fractured and infighting. And then third, verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Why should I not hinder anyone? Because when I welcome and I encourage the faith of others, I'll actually receive a reward. And that's a great encouragement. Something as small as a cup of water given for the sake of Christ to another believer who's outside of your circle gives you a reward in heaven. Again, your service is not going unnoticed by the Father. I mean, when you care for others, particularly when you care for people that are weak and vulnerable, you are not going to be noticed many times by the world. But Jesus is saying, but you will be noticed by the Father. And he will reward even the smallest acts of service to those that the world says are insignificant. So how do we encourage the faith of others? Well, I think first, be encouraged when you hear of others living for Christ, not threatened. I think sometimes when we hear about someone who's living for Christ, maybe that's at a different church or doing something a little bit different than us, we start to feel threatened. But don't feel threatened. Be encouraged that this person is striving after Christ. We're not in competition with each other. We should be striving together in the cause of Christ. And then try to not be exclusive, right? Don't have a kind of a clicky atmosphere, you know, where it's just you and a few friends or you and a few friends from church. You know, reach out to, again, to receive all, just like he talked about before. Welcome all. Be someone that brings people in rather than seeks to exclude. And so hinder no one. So if we want to follow our suffering servant, we should receive all. We should strive to encourage the faith of others, not hinder it. And the last thing we should do is make sure that we don't cause anybody to stumble or to sin. And so stumble no one. That's verses 42 to 50, which are some, some kind of terrifying verses. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I mean, Jesus is going out of his way to say, make sure that you realize the terrifying danger of causing someone to sin or to stumble, your verse might say. I mean, it's a terrifying verse. And I think when we read this, you know, just by itself, you kind of think, well, okay, well, I'm never going to cause any believer to sin. Like, that. I'm not going to do that. But in the context, what is he talking about? And even in verse 42, when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. So who's, who's he talking about? The child that he just mentioned. Or the people that John excluded. He's saying, if you cause any of these people to stumble... Right? The people that are outside of your circle or the people that the world views as insignificant, if you cause any of them to stumble, 
it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you to be cast into the sea. And in the context, it's not so much that he's saying that you would never cause anyone to sin in general. Like, of course we don't want that. But specifically, we don't want to ever give anyone the wrong impression of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. If you cause someone to stumble by not receiving them, or if you cause someone to stumble by hindering their faith rather than encouraging it, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you cast into the bottom of the sea. Because if someone knows that you're a Christian and you're unkind to them, what will they think about Christ? Or if someone knows you're a Christian and you dismiss their faith, what will they think about Christ? Christ is saying, if you misrepresent me to the point where someone can no longer see me for who I am, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you cast into the sea. And I mean, think about that image. I mean, imagine that someone drives you out to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge and they tie around your neck a millstone which could weigh 2,000 pounds and then they drop you off of the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, you're going to sink to the bottom of the water. And you might struggle, you might try to get free, but there's no way that you're going to get free. And then you'd run out of air and you would die. And Christ says, that would be better than if you misrepresent me to a follower of Christ. I mean, it's a terrifying thought. And it's something that I don't think we consider enough, that the way that we treat other people is a reflection of the way that people are going to see Christ and how important that is, how you know, vital it is that we represent Christ well. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says in verses 43 to 48, deal with your sin, right? Deal with the things that might cause someone to stumble. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, again, I think we treat these verses usually in isolation. And the idea is, oh, well, you should really deal radically with sin in your life. Like, if you have a problem with lust, that you should get rid of the computer, that you should throw it away, that you shouldn't give yourself any room for temptation. And there's wisdom in that, and that is what many other verses teach. But in the context, again, what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about sin in general. He's talking specifically about the sins related to how you represent Christ to other people. If there are things in your life that cause you to not receive all, cut that off. If there are sins in your life that cause you to hinder the faith of others, get rid of it. Because if you don't, he says, you're going to find yourself in hell. You need to deal with the fact that you don't value the way, people the way that I value them. You need to radically deal with the fact that you're quick to exclude others. 
you need to radically deal with the sins that keep you from serving people the way that I served you. Right? It all comes back to radically dealing with sin that keeps you from treating people the way that Christ has treated you. I mean, John 13, right? They'll know you're my disciples by the love that you have for each other. If there are sins in your life that are keeping you from loving the body of Christ, radically deal with those sins. Because if you don't come to terms with how you treat other people, Jesus says you could be experiencing hell, the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, these are Christ's words to his disciples. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to his disciples disciples. I mean, some of Christ's strongest words are for those that are following him physically, but are not treating people the way that he treats them. And he's basically telling them, look, I know that you've been with me, but if you don't deal with your heart towards other people, you can expect to find yourself experiencing hell, not eternal life. Now, he's not saying they're going to lose your salvation, but he's essentially pushing them to ask the question, do you really know what it means to follow me? Do you really desire to serve people the way that I have served you? Because it means you need to be willing to put your pride and selfishness to death so that you can serve others the way that I've served you. And so do you see the seriousness of how you treat people, particularly how you treat even other believers? He says, every one of these little ones who believes in me. I mean, jealousy, bitterness, resentment, envy, slander, unforgiveness, ignoring people, excluding people, putting others down, talking behind their back. These are the kinds of sins that Christ says, you need to radically deal with those sins if you're going to follow me. Because greatness, again, is measured in service. And so if greatness is measured in service, then punishment is often measured in how seriously you deal with the sin that keeps you from serving others. And so deal with your ego so that you'll care, you won't care anymore about who's the greatest. Deal with your pride so that you'll care about those who the world ignores. Deal with the fact that you like to have your bubble and you sort of exclude others so that you can be an encouragement to other people's faith. And if you do these things, you'll be following your suffering servant. I think when you read words like this, that we're to receive all, that we're to hinder no one, and that we're to really care about, you know, the faith of others, I mean, you ask yourself the question at some point, like, well, who can do these things? I mean, how is it that I'm going to receive all, that I'm not going to hinder anyone, that I'm going to love people the way that Jesus has loved me? How can we do that? Or who can do that? And in one sense, like, the answer, of course, is like, nobody. Nobody can do that. Nobody can serve the way that Jesus served me. And yet that's the beauty of Christ's sacrificial service, is that he's laying down his life so that you could actually do this. His sacrificial service makes your sacrificial service possible. That's why he says, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and be killed, so that my people then can love people the way that I have loved them. I must do this so that you can be free from your bondage to yourself. 
I must heal you from your blindness, the blindness of your pride, and give you understanding so that you can see what true greatness looks like. I must lay down my life for you. You know, Christ's sacrifice was a service to his people. He became the last of all. He became a servant of all. He welcomed you when you were nobody, when you were of no value to the world. He didn't exclude you from his plans. He lived a life of sinless perfection to serve you. And now we have the privilege of living that kind of life to everyone else that we see. We get to serve the way that Jesus served us. And so follow your suffering servant. Receive all. Hinder no one. Stumble no one. See every other believer that you run across as an opportunity to encourage someone to be like Christ, to point them to Jesus. Help them to see Jesus clearly by treating them the way that Jesus treated you. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled again as we look to Christ, as we see him and his willingness to serve us when we didn't deserve it. When we think about the way that he welcomed us, even when we were sinners, when we think about the way that he doesn't exclude us from the things that he's doing, but he involves us in what he's doing, we're humbled. We just counted it such a great privilege to be your children, to be involved in what you're doing. And so, Lord, help us to be like Christ. Help us to live a life of sacrificial service. Help us to welcome all, to receive all, to hinder no one, to stumble no one. That we would see every person as someone who's important to you because they are. And that we would love them because we love you. And we would love them in the way that you have loved us. And of course, from a human perspective, that is impossible. And it seems very intimidating to think about living all of my life that way. And yet because of what Christ did, because in him we died, our flesh actually died, and we have new life in him, we can live this way. We won't do it perfectly, but may we strive to do it more and more each day so that others would see Christ as he truly is and he would be exalted. So help us, Lord, in Christ's name.